Let's drop the green flag on this episode of The Talent Tank Podcast with your host, Wyatt Pemberton, bringing you the best, fastest, most knowledgeable personalities in Ultra 4 and off-road racing. Hey, it's Wyatt. Yes, asking for your help. If you like the show and enjoy the content, please hit the five-star rating on Apple Podcast or on Stitcher. Please consider writing a quick review on the Talent Tank Facebook page, on YouTube, and absolutely on Apple Podcast. And consider joining the discussions in the Talent Tank Insiders group on Facebook. All right, let's get to it. Here we go. Welcome back. Another episode of the Talent Tank. As you clicked on today's episode, you saw we got this fella from Tennessee, Adam Woodley. He's owner of Wide Open Designs. They make some really awesome cars. And he's a crane axle business owner. Welcome, Adam. Good to have you on. Thanks, Wyatt. Man, I appreciate you giving us the opportunity to come on. I think what you've got going on with the podcast is really awesome. And I reached out to you pretty quick whenever I saw you drop uh, the podcast. And I really wanted to either be a part of it or just tell you, I think it's a pretty awesome thing that you're doing. You put this together where people can come and kind of get a different view of what the industry is about. So I think it's pretty awesome what you're doing. Yeah. You hit me up and I was, I have, when I looked at this and everyone's heard me talk about this, like I had, I said I was going to do 12 episodes and I slated, I had names for some of my spots and then some of the spots I didn't have names, but I had genres or guys that I want like a go get on. And one of those was, well, several of those were like builder type individuals. And when you said something, I was like, man, I get along with you so well. Uh, our, uh, we've been able to jive really well. I've known you since 2008, 2009 timeframe, spent a lot of time with you in, in some trucks out West doing some, uh, chasing some races and doing some racing, man, love you. The opportunity to have you on and pick your brain on how you think outside the box and your innovation, man, that's, that was a no brainer to, uh, to jump on that opportunity to get you in here. Oh, it was awesome. I really, like I said, I just appreciate the opportunity and, uh, what you got going is a cool thing. So kind of, uh, kick it off. What do you got? What you got? <laughs> I got, yeah, well, we met in 2008 XRA era. And then the really, really my first story though, that I recall with you, I mean, we have a bunch, but the Brannock crew there in Indiana, they had a party at a field. Uh, I think there was a barn on it, but it was mostly an after race party. And you guys, you and Ricky Berry and a whole bunch of Alabama and Tennessee guys go rented this was like a 15 passenger Ford van and rolled this thing up to the race together. And you guys split gas and split the rental. And everyone was like, no, we're, we're, we're hard on stuff. We're not going to be hard on stuff with all of us. We'll get a rental. <laughs> so the way that started was when we were all just trying to travel to all the XRA events because we were just going as fans and having fun. So Bosk Murphy rented a van. He lives over near Knoxville, three or four hours from us, but would slip through Murfreesboro. Ricky B would come up and somehow we would always get hooked up and then ride wherever we were going. And this one time you're talking about, yeah, we had a 15 passenger van and I know where you're headed with this story. And it's, it's yeah. So <laughs> Bosk went to bed early it was epic. You know, like NASA has that zero gravity plane where everybody gets in the plane and they go up to 45,000 feet and then they drop and you go straight down. So everybody, they replicate zero gravity because you're effectively skydiving, but still with inside the fuselage. That was that 15 passenger van <laughs> with none other than you behind the wheel. Adam Woodley, we're in a, a, a farm field in middle of nowhere, Indiana, somewhere near the Badlands. It was within driving distance, clearly. And everybody piling into this thing. And I remember Brian Shirley is next to me. He's eating a corn dog. Levi Shirley is in there. No, I take that back. Maybe it wasn't a corn dog. Maybe it was just corn on a cob. It was some, It was long. It was dark inside here. And you know, Rusty Bray and the Sears crew with uh, Kim and, and Nathan Droopy. And you are, Cole Shirley was in there. Old Madram 11. And there is some donuts being cut. And like I said, this zero gravity plane, as flashes are going off inside the van, people memorializing the event, you see floating balls of beer, you see cans in the air, you see this corn dog flying through the air. And 
I I bet on the outside looking in, people that are watching this go off in the dark, it probably looked like downtown Baghdad going off inside of it. Oh, it was pretty wild. And I remember, so the way that I got the van was Bosk wanted to go to bed early. Him and Jen wanted to go to bed, and he was like, don't jump the van. We've got to drive the van home. Don't jump the van. That's all I heard the whole way back to the hotel. And I can't even remember who was riding with me. As soon as he shut the door, I said he didn't say nothing about donuts. Let's go. So <laughs> as fast as we could, it was back to Brannick's party. And I piled everybody I could. I remember young Levi Shirley was in it with a, a helmet that was like stars and stripes. And I was like, let's ride. It was awesome. So, yeah, we had a good time. We didn't jump that van, though. No. Boss, we didn't jump that van. Mm-mm. He only cut donuts and it drove all the way back home just fine. And then this is my personal kind of story about what you did to influence me. And this is, this is crazy looking back on what it was then, but we were together in, uh, Arizona, no, in in Nevada, we were together in Nevada in Oh nine chasing a race with that whole team unite ultra four guys. And we were in Jeff Knowles chase truck together. It was you, me, Ken Mercer, doc. And, uh, Oh, what was the other fellow's name? Uh, Barcroft, Dan Barcroft, yeah, that's it. Dan the guy who built the uh, the four link calculator that we all use on Pirate Four by Four. I think he's still rolling around today. Dan Barcroft. So it was Dan, you, Ken Mercer, and myself, and Jeff Knowles' chase truck, and he still does not let up with me about that chase truck. And we were were gentle to that truck. I mean, but he's had flaming hot Cheetos all over the floor and sunflower seeds and. I think we hit something like a thousand of these suicidal bunnies. The rabbits that night that would just run out in front of the headlights and commit suicide was unreal. Never saw anything like it. Suicidal bunnies. Out of that whole trip, though, you had uh, you had recently quit drinking. I don't remember if you quit drinking sodas because of the caffeine or sodas because of the sugar, but you had, had been on a penchant for drinking Mountain Dews. You decided leading up to that, or you had recently just said, Cold turkey, I'm cutting them out. Yeah, so I drank a lot of Sun Drops. It's a drink that we have down here in the South. I was drinking two a day, no matter what. And it was really nothing any more than just what it was, was we went riding one New Year's weekend. It was a long weekend, like a four-day stint. And I didn't take any Sun Drop with me, and I didn't miss them, and I didn't drink any that weekend. I was like, so I just told myself, I was like, I didn't need them then, so why do I need them now? So I just quit, kind of cold turkey. Uh, and that's where that kind of was. And I was just off of them for a minute, but don't really know why that stuck with you. Stuck with me because there we were, we're in the Nevada desert. It's like 120 degrees as hot as hell. We're just drinking waters, maybe Gatorades a little bit. And I was kind of in the same position. I was like, man, I'm drink. I drink too much soda. I like my penchant was Dr. Pepper. So, and came back after a spending whatever, six or seven days out there in the desert not having had all that sugar, I was like, man, this is a good place to stop. And I stopped. Now, yeah. didn't stop the wheels that were already in motion. Like, I am a diabetic today. I'm a type two, you know, turn, turn myself into one. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's, uh, that sucks. You know, I mean, sugar's a, sugar's a damn problem. You know, I still have a sweet tooth, but yeah, you, uh, you made me cold turkey cut out sodas back a decade ago. All because we were oh, riding yeah. a truck together. Yeah. Just because we were riding a truck together. Yeah. The effects you have on people and you never even know it, right? That's the coolest thing about the whole racing and the whole world that you do. I guess it's the same with guys that play sports or whatever else. I never was a sports guy, but just you really, whenever you spend time with different guys a week or two at a time or two or three days at a time, you kind of pick up on nuances and you really, if you look for the good in people, you pick up the good nuances they have. And it's pretty cool because like with racing and whatnot, you're liable to go to Mexico, out west, up north, wherever, be stuck with somebody for three or four days at a time and then not see them again for maybe even a year. But you just enjoy those guys and you can pick right back up. That's where you make those lifelong friends that whenever you say, man, I don't even talk to the guy, but you can catch right back up at any point in time. Those That's where those guys kind of friends come from. It's, you know, what I think about it. They're the best kind. They're the absolute best no kind doubt. of people that, that touch you in life and that you stay in touch. And sa- same with us. I mean, that's exactly how it's been. So Adam Woodley, he's from Murfreesboro, Tennessee. We kind of talked a little bit about the South earlier, and I didn't drop in where you're from, but uh, you're from Murfreesboro. You live there today. You live there most of your life. You started uh, 
out of high school, you started your little shop behind your uh, your dad's house in a barn, and you've grown this thing, you know, exponentially. You know, some TV show work uh, and a whole bunch of just awesome, awesome pieces of rolling artwork that we're going to talk about here today. Awesome. Yeah. So started out young, knowing kind of that I really just had a knack for I wanted to be doing something in the off-road world. Tried out two or three different things and then, you know, went to college for a long time. Never really got a degree. It's not something I'm really that proud of that I didn't get a degree. But what I'm really proud of is what all college taught me in a few different set downs and, you know, facets of life because I went for engineering. And of course, I took a lot of stuff away from engineering that I still use today. And then I had a pretty heavy major in marketing. You know, we've marketed this business a lot and we pay a lot of attention to how we market and where we market. So everything I learned in college, I I still use today. But then, you know, out of college, it was like, what do you want to do? I started the shop, quit the last job that I really worked for someone else at 22 years old and said, hey, I'm just going to try to make a run at it. And then from that point forward, just kept hustling, worked really hard, had a great opportunity with my dad having a shop there pretty much in his backyard that I was able to use and grow out of and everything else. And then just really fell into it from there. And that that was what was, that's really what made it able for me to grow. You were a staple on the trails back in that era. Oh man. So me and dad got into wheeling whenever I was 14 years old, built him a rig, built myself a rig pretty soon after we built his. And I remember my high school senior year from New Year's to graduation date, we missed four weekends in the woods. So, I mean, that's a that's a pretty healthy, we were in the woods every weekend, a riding time. I wish I had that much time to go riding now. Right. But yeah, uh, we traveled all around, you know, I was 22, 23, 24, 25, traveled all around everywhere on the East Coast and everything else until, and then I kind of got bit by the bug of, you know, Hammer King and all that, which was just back then, it was just straight up King of the Hammers. Right. Well, we are going to go into your family here in a little bit because you're you're a family man today, but you weren't a family man early on in life. So I'm going to hold that off. We're going to work on uh, what it took to those early years of uh, of deciding to be a business owner. And we, you talked about college, you know, regretting not having a, your a degree, but man, it certainly taught you that you had to continue to learn, right? And it taught you how to learn because you today, you're a sharp individual. Well, sometimes I don't think so, but yeah, it definitely, college definitely will teach you. The biggest thing I think I took away from college was you have to follow a certain set of rules to get a certain outcome. And no matter what, if you don't like the way that somebody has it done, you kind of still got to play that game. And that's whether it's reading the rule book in racing, or if you're trying to program a CNC machine, or if you're just trying to do a new computer program, or if you got to cut the metal before you weld it. It teaches you that there's a process to it. I did learn a lot of that through college. It's kind of, whenever you really think about it, it's pretty pretty crazy how all that stuff that you did go through in the college days and your younger years really impacts what you kind of take from that and, and move on life with. I guess the right word is, were you uh, kind of eclectic in in that era, in high school, in middle school? Were you a, a doodler, a drawer? Were you into art? Were you What was exercising that side of your brain back in that era? In high school, I, I can't draw at all. I can doodle around on paper and kind of get my thoughts down, but no. Through high school, I really had a great teacher in our ag mechanics class in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, and he was actually a family friend of ours, uh, Blaine Kieser. And the guy taught more young people in Rutherford County, where I'm from, how to cut, weld, bend metal than anybody else. So I really took up with that. My dad, you know, working on a farm growing up, then my dad teaching me stuff, going into high school, learning another little bit of the trade. I really took into, I liked fabrication, I liked welding, I liked cutting, bending, I liked being able to start with nothing, take my two hands and some machines and turn it into something. That's what I really enjoyed. How many full car turnkey builds have you done in your last 20 years? Somewhere around 30. And they're just these gorgeous rolling pieces of art. And probably the, the coup de gras from my perspective is that, uh, that it was a 38 special for John Gil- Gilbreth. Yeah, John G's 38 Special. John G's 38 Special was pretty awesome. And it's, in my opinion, it's still the nicest rock crawler that's ever been built. 
for the fact of what all trinkets and everything else is on it. When I say the nicest, when I say that, I mean the nicest show car quality rock crawler that there is. For sure, that thing was pretty over the top and pretty crazy. And then we've just kept right on from there building... Just rock bouncers. Some beautiful jungle gym highlighter colored (laughs) jungle gems. Like powder coated jungle gym in the brightest color you could. Make it swoopy, super protective. And uh, it came out of there's only a few guys out there in y'all's neck of the woods that were doing that there in the south. And you were one of the leaders there. So, yeah, we had rock bouncers. We've got trail cars that are just built for more of a trail look. They're a lot simpler tube work-wise. They got a lot more panels on them and whatnot. We've got a few chassis today that really we feel like would fit about anyone's needs. The only chassis we don't have is like a Jesse Haynes Fab or like a, uh, what's the other guys, like the Rock Lizard guys, that, that really simplified true rock crawler-ish thing. Those chassis just aren't that big over here on the East Coast. I really wish they were because I think I think the simplicity of that chassis is pretty awesome. I'd like to build one at some point in time someday. We just don't right now currently. I know we're going we're gonna to spend a lot of time talking about your product line because I have so many questions and so many things, but since we are talking about chassis, yeah, you make a, a tube buggy that fits a, a Jeep tub. Yeah. And that thing, I've I've ogled that thing and drilled over that thing so many a- occasions going, man, I, I think I need that. I think I need that. And then I'm like, I think you do. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you do. And I'm like, where would I drive that? Uh, my wife drive it to the grocery store? I mean, that's, uh, yeah. yeah, as long as, long as uh, you know, you sell it, right? I love yeah. you, Adam. <laughs> yeah. No, man. So, yeah, you've been building cars for, yeah, 20 years. And then you moved out from behind uh, your dad's shop, oh, what, nine years ago, eight years ago? It was in 2012. So 2012, we moved into town, moved from my dad's shop. It was 2,200 square feet behind his house. And then we moved into a shop in town. It's 12,500 square feet on the floor. And with the mezzanines and above head storage and everything, it's right at 15,000 square feet. So when we moved into this place, we thought like, oh my God, we got more room than we'll ever know what to do with. And we filled it up pretty quick. Don't worry. (laughs) It's like any shop. Bursting at the seams, right? Not yet, but it's uh, it definitely has filled up, and it's been so awesome to be in a good building, a uh, pretty decent location, and uh, it, it really has helped be able to grow the business. And then here today, you uh, don't get me wrong, we are not skipping into the the KOH stuff. It's that that stuff is coming. Yeah. Now we've kind of worked up from you've been there since 2012. You've grown your business. You kind of when we start talking about the racing aspect of your life, you actually stepped away. What year did you kind of start slowing down and stepping away from racing without us talking about racing yet? 2010 was the last time I drove a car, a 4400 car in KOH as a driver myself. But then you were still supporting and building cars that were uh, race cars. I mean, you have you still have a cu- couple cars out in the field today. Who all in the current 4400 field is in a wide open car? Kevin Porterfield is racing one of our cars. It's an IFS car that we built a few years ago. He's fought bunches of troubles. He actually pulled it together and pulled off a third this year at Dirty Turtle, uh, 4400 class. Brian McVeigh is racing one of our chassis. Stan, Stan, Brannick Stan is racing one of our chassis. A guy named Philip McGilton is racing one of our cars in 4400 class. So we've still got guys out there racing that we support. We try to help and everything else, but it's been a while since I've been in a car. I don't know. Part of, part of me, that's rough, but you, uh, you spent this time to build your empire. So, Without going into KOH and just touching on it a little bit, in 2010, I finished 21st at KOH. So I was the first guy to miss the spot at KOH, you know, the the return spot or whatever else you want to call it, the guaranteed spot for next year. And that next year, I just kind of made the decision that I didn't have enough money to run 4,400 like what I was running. I was just like, when I get focused in on something like anybody with a race car does at some point in time, they let everything else go. Well, I realized if I ever wanted to grow a business and have good employees and guys that trusted me and everything else that I couldn't put their lives at a disadvantage because I wanted to go race. So I made the choice to, I was going to grow a business. I was going to grow a successful off-road business that built really nice cars and really high quality and all that stuff, but I wanted to do it. And if I ever ended up racing again, I was going to be able to do it the right way. The guys that I say are doing it the right way, you know, you Gerald Savvies, um, Cody Wagner, who else is doing it? Anybody that can do it and it doesn't really put a, a strain on their business or their livelihood or anything anything else it's it's actually extra money and time and 
effort that they can put into it and actually enjoy it. Because whenever you're doing this the way I was doing it back in those days, it wasn't enjoyable. It was just a, it was so strenuous. And everybody that's racing 4400 gets to that point at some point in time. It's so much work for those guys to get across that start line, much less the finish line. It's everybody that races 4400 or not 4400. Everybody that races Ultra 4 should be commended for the fact that they go after that little bit of extra in life, you know. Yeah, yeah, hundreds and hundreds of hours each race just in the shop, spin on the same car over and over and over and over again. Yeah. It does it gets monotonous, uh it wears on you physically, mentally, and uh and and your bank account. Yeah, and financially for yeah, sure. Right. Yeah. You built this empire and man, the details are badass. I mean, you have some amazing accomplishments with that, but you waited, you put a lot of personal stuff on hold, like a wife and like kids and and all that, but you got married here fairly recently. Yeah. Compared to so, all the rest of us that are 40 something. <laughs> no, I did. I, I waited for a while before I ever, I guess you want to call it settled down and got married. I've been with my wife Cole for nine years now. Awesome woman. So much support from this girl. And she's so awesome. And she's been with me from when we moved from my dad's shop to here and everything else. And I've made this poor girl wait on having kids and everything else. So I kind of made myself the 100% promise that if I ever did ever have kids and was and did all that, I would do it the right way. And I'd spend a lot of time with them. And, that, and you know, we've got Jax now and he's 16 months old and it's so awesome he comes to the shop in the evenings about twice a week he just hangs out at first i thought i'm gonna have to find a babysitter that this kid can't come here you know twice a week and be here in the middle of the work day and he shows up at about four o'clock and you know we close at six but it's been awesome everybody here has learned to just like love him everybody if he doesn't show up everybody's like where's jack's at so it's been really a lot of fun but i've actually taken time over the past two years to really settle down and just say look i'm gonna be a good dad i'm gonna be a good husband and i'm really gonna just play this family guy thing for a little bit and build off of it you know and it's been so much fun like i'm happier now that I've been in a long time whenever it comes to that stuff. It's been awesome. And it's not like Cole is just hanging out at home and washing dishes and doing laundry. She's a she's no. a better woman herself. Oh no, she's superwoman, man. She sells real estate. She's got a dance studio. She's got a another job in corporate America. It's pretty crazy what all that girl does on her own. And I do think that's one reason that she and I mix so well is she's always had her own thing. She's not looking for me to clock out at five and come home. That's not her gig at all. So I do think that's one reason that it really works with her with us. Each of you has the opportunity to support each other, but also do your own thing. And that's uh, I think that's a survivorship of marriages that you have to find that that balance and find that that right person for it. No doubt. I do believe that's 100 percent correct. And that may be what why you had to wait until you're, you know, dang, you're 30 years old to, to find one to, uh, to do that with. I don't know. I, I always find it interesting, you know, how the people that, you know, they're successful i've said it before on the show is uh the successful guys or successful women when you look at who their partner is that they found like this really good mesh you know they found this this partner that is uh you know supportive and but yet challenges them you know make make sure that you know they're on their a game all the time and if you're always on your a game you know what is it what's that saying like a, a rolling stone gathers no moss i've never heard that but i do like that and that's 100% true. A good partner means the world. And it's been pretty awesome having somebody that's in your corner always. But she's not as scared to call me out in a heartbeat and tell me when I'm doing something dumb, too, which I need. Oh, absolutely. I, <laughs> all of us need that. I think that's a, I actually believe that's like job one. Job one. <laughs> job one. When I'm doing dumbass stuff, yeah, you better say yeah. you better say something. Get me back. Keep me between the ditches, woman. Real me in here. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right, oh, man. But y'all have been spending a lot of time together. You got a boat. You do a little uh, lake work. Yeah, man. So it. They told me Jack needed to be about two years old before I took him to any kind of wheeling or whatnot. So we've been staying away from doing wheeling with him. I found that uh, I really like boating, so he can actually, he loves the lake, goes out, put him in his swim, you know, life jacket, throw him in the water. We love it, having fun. So 
we have been paying a little bit more attention this year and last year to the lake just because I believe that's what jacks can do. Not to say that I don't just absolutely love it as much as anybody does. I'm having fun. It is my release. Like, there is no doubt that four-wheeling used to be my 100% release. I could go to the woods and, and get away and everything else. Now... It's not like I'm famous or anything else, but if I go to the woods, just my mind is working 100%. It might as well be like I clocked in on Saturday to, to go do to go show up to work or whatever else. And it has nothing to do with customers or anything else or question. It's just my mind goes to work all day long on why didn't that thing climb that hill? What's wrong with that four link? What could we do better with this or anything of that sort? So at the end of the day, you don't really get to unplug and enjoy the weekend like you do whenever I go to the lake because I don't care nothing about what makes a boat run better or anything else. But that's, I mean, that's fair to say that you aren't able to unplug, but without those instances, it wouldn't, in the way your head works, it doesn't drive, you're not going to have those impulses or those inputs for innovation. No, there's no doubt with that. You are 100% correct. And I still love four-wheeling. I actually bought the very first buggy, the very first turnkey buggy that I ever built. I bought it back a few years ago from Bob Barnett, the Ubicon, and I've turned it into just my personal trail rig. I'll never sell it. I've told my wife that it's going to be pretty damn cold sleeping in it for three or four nights before we have to sell it because things are going to have to be that bad. But I still love taking that thing, going to the woods, trail riding, going to competitions or whatever else. I still love it. I'm ate up with it actually uh i do think that's one reason that i can work so hard is because i absolutely love what i do but whenever it comes time to actually unplug and get away i can't do it four-wheeling anymore well i will tell you i love ubicon like when that car came out beautiful black low slung yeah and just it it makes me like drool I, I think it's for a rock bouncer it's a very sexy machine and you gave me a ride in it at koh uh man i want to say like 2013 2014 somewhere in there okay you had just bought it back. Those years sound about right. Man, I think I bought it back. It's later than that. It's like 16, 16, 16 or so. Yeah. They, they, those years certainly blend together, but yeah, yeah. you, you just gotten it back. We're out there and uh, jump in, have some beers. And all we did was cruise Hammertown and cruising Hammertown and that thing. It, it turns eyes because it's not a race car. It's just this uh -uh. sexy, like, like a black Ferrari on 44 <laughs> inch swampers. Yeah. The, the seating position is way reclined so you're like uh just cruising it's a nice cruiser that's a yeah it's an awesome car i'm glad you got the opportunity to buy that back i am too it was a really good opportunity bob always told me from when he had it he's like you'll end up with this thing someday and i never really kind of took him serious until it got serious and we made it happen and i'm so glad to have it back like i pretty much couldn't put a price tag on that thing so you made a statement a little bit ago about uh jacks and get onto the trail and an age thing and it's been a few years since i've had a kid of that age and i remember how excited it was when ordered up the you know the mastercraft mini me and mounted in the you know making my two-seater a three-seater and an extended yeah. roof line to be able to take even in that first trip it's pretty awesome but again what is the rule of thumb on that i'd never had anyone say hey you shouldn't go at this age it was i think he started going maybe around three but what's the you got some advice on that has a doctor said hey not to this point or my wife said two years old i'm holding it to two years old all right well we will go off that <laughs> That's what the wife said the doctor said, so that's where I'm headed with it. Dr. Cole Woodley, she says... <laughs> two years no i don't know what it is i know uh when i reached out to mastercraft about that seat it was you know they had some you know they don't advertise it and i know prp makes a little kid seat but it, you know just from the liability standpoint they don't want people putting their little kids in these uh -huh. in these seats in case they get hurt or something and want to come back i'm mean, I, I fully get fully get that but at the same time new wheeling and getting out getting out of the house getting away from the people and getting out in the woods is uh i mean that's that's where that's where the family time starts man it is. My wife loves four-wheeling, so we're we're excited about doing it. And I don't want to take him like extreme hardcore four-wheeling and by any means leaf hurt, looking hurt him or anything else. But yes, exactly right. Like I'm ready to go leaf looking and just get him in the woods. The kid loves outside right now. He loves coming to the shop. It's funny because I, I've got some little orange headphones that his mom got for him to wear around in the shop and not everything's not loud. And he can fire, you can fire up any buggy you want to around him. He's got them little headphones on. He doesn't cry. He doesn't need anything else. It's pretty, he's just tame to it. So I'm looking forward to getting him to the woods because I know that he loves going outside when he's at the house and all that so watching a kid's face whenever they get all these new experiences is pretty awesome well, i'm sitting there i know you're telling the truth because i see those orange uh earmuffs are behind you on the they're, they're right there they're right behind yeah. you on the counter 
they, they, they really are. I wasn't lying. No, no, I, I know <laughs> you wouldn't. All right, man. Let's uh, let's go back to this. Let's jump back to racing and KOH and that trajectory and the cars you built and those guys that uh, building cars for them. What that did for your business and propel you and put you in a situation where you were able to jump into that twelve thousand square foot shop. Cool. We can go from just where I kind of quit my last job. Quit my last job, 22 years old. Before the, the job that I quit then, I was working for a guy that built wooden boats. So I built wood boats for like four years. And that guy, Travis, taught me fit and finish that I carry on today. And I think that really did help the eye. And just like he taught me that anybody can build of anything 90%. The last 10% is what really makes the difference, though. You know this with dealing with cars, land speed cars, trucks, whatever else. Like it's easy to go the 90%, but to really finish it off you got to put in that extra 10 and that is what makes a difference so and it's that last 10 percent takes 90 percent of the time it really does you are 100 percent right on that so we built a few buggies i kind of got bit by the bug of racing i actually told myself that it seemed to me like four-wheeling was changing on the east coast we were losing a lot of our public land that we that i thought was public that's not really that wasn't really public land it was by a landowner that was shutting land down over here and I always I said we got to find something that'll carry a business on and so then I turned to racing that's kind of when we started going to all the XRA races and everything else we built a few buggies built like the 38 we built uh my dad's Jeep low life Yubicon built cab truck a few things so I like I want to take my stab at building a race car this was 2007 ish or whatever else met Bender going to XRA races hit it off with that guy hit it off with him he starts telling us about KOH, we're all on pirate. We see. I remember ordering this DVD by Woke Films, the 2000, I believe it was, was it 2008 KOH? Yeah, it was the 2008. And it was produced, and man, it just. That year built a fire, or that video built a fire in me, made me build this new car. Well, actually, I didn't get started on the new car till we all put in proposals. You sent in a proposal to get accepted into going to KOH in one of the 100 spots. You remember those days? Because I oh, remember. Yeah, we talked about it. I remember that you sent in an awesome proposal because when Dave Cole called me to tell me that I had a spot, he said, You and Wyatt Pemberton, and I can't remember the other guy's name, sent in just awesome, actually, marketing packages of why we thought we would be good to come into KOH and I thought I'd be good at KOH as a marketing standpoint because I was a guy from the east coast I was a young guy that would build a complete car for it and that's what I did I mean the very first set of bypass shocks I ever saw in my life were shipped to my door I didn't know what they were for what they did or anything else I just knew all the cool guys had them out west and I was going out west and I had to have me some too <laughs> no, no. Yeah. I remember rolling into downtown Houston in a, in a dually and Dave Cole calling me and answering the phone. And he's like, Hey, this is Dave Cole. And you got a second to talk. Well, yeah. I, yeah. Let me pull over here. And so you want to, you want to come out here in February and come racing? Yeah. 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 I certainly do. I definitely do. And yeah, he said, uh, you guys and, uh, the Shirley's. Yeah. And in Bender, you know, Ken Mercer was also uh, on the invite list there. And that all came down to Bender, Rob Bender Park, vouching for a whole bunch of us that were running that, that circuit. We were. And if you really look back, Bender, Bender vouched for the right group of guys, though. He really did. We all showed up. We all had cars. We all, we all kind of, I'm going to say we all did the deal. We all raced multiple years or whatnot and, and gave it our best effort at it. So... That's whenever I built the Hustler. The Hustler was the first rear-engine car I'd ever built. Built it with Spider Tracks outers, first time I'd ever used those. We tried a lot of different stuff on that car, and I loved it because it was it was our, it was my car. If it didn't work, then it's shame on me. And first time that I ever went past Oklahoma in my life was on my way to KOH at 26 years old in 2009. Where's that car today? I think Jared Stover owns it now in Missouri. Is last that I heard that last person I heard that had it. I may would like to have it back someday. <laughs> yeah, I, that, that's where I was going. I could, I yeah. could, I'm reading your facial expressions, and uh, yeah, you, you'd. Uh, I mean, yeah. There's those first that you have and you let go. I remember the conversation about that car, and you're talking about fuel cells, and that car was unique that had the fuel cell underneath the seats, and you're like, that. you're <laughs> like, yeah, man, I just I figured out you know what would fit here, and I welded it up, and then. I put it in a box with a just 
fistfuls of money and just shipped it to California for a bladder. Uh, that was that was the option of uh, of that car, and I didn't actually get a bladder for it because I we raced that year in two thousand eight. They they wanted fistfuls of money in it, and I didn't have it, and I never put a bladder in that cell that was underneath my legs. That was two thousand eight, and like I remember showing up to the lake bed, and they didn't have it written in the rules, but you could see Jeff Knowles sweating bullets when he watched me put gas in that thing, and I pulled the window net down, and I. I took the rubber hose that was on my gas can and actually put it down there beside my knee and poured gas in it. And he was like, you can't do this in a race. And I was like, oh, I'll be careful. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't have a clue that that was not a smart thing to do. I did not have any idea how hot a race car got. Like that's every time that we go racing for the first time and there's somebody new in the pits, I'm like, do not touch the car when it comes into the pits. Like, it's like the A-pillar on it gets to be 140 degrees. I don't understand why they get so hot. They just get hot all over. It's insane. I guess this is a good segue to hot car stories. You and I, we were in somewhere in middle of nowhere, Nevada, and uh, Jeff Noel and Wayne Israelson came rolling in in a car that we were to pit. And they had, uh, they were having, I mean, every car that race was having either vapor locking issue with fuel systems or coolant issues with radiators. And this one had a radiator issue and they they're screaming out of the radio. It needs water. It needs, you know, we need, we need coolant. We need coolant. And I've got, uh, you know, these big old gloves on. I'm like, all right, let's, let's pop this thing open and and fill it. And no sooner than I pop it and it blows, they said it was empty. It blows shit out of there. And it's at that point, somebody said that's, that's piss. We 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 had to piss in there. It just we were putting everything we had in it, and it sprayed hot piss all over. Oh, a whole bunch of us. Yeah, everybody that was in that pit, I I blocked that out of my memory. Thanks for bringing that one up. <laughs> and I know you looked at me like you idiot. You idiot. Yes, I do remember thinking that. I probably said that in a lot more colorful words, but I'm sorry if I did. No, it's it just it was what it was. I mean. It, you were excited. I remember you were flapping your hands around. You were so excited that they were coming in. Yeah, we wanted we to get that car back forever. out. I remember. I do remember we were waiting on them to. That was Vegas Torino, and everything that that forty four hundred class raced against. Everybody talks about the race, the race, the race, the race. That race was absolutely against not getting cut off at the next checkpoint. Yeah, it, it and, certainly was. And I do remember that. So, like, when, when they got to moving, that's all you would wait to hear on the radio is, like, can we make it to the next checkpoint? Can we make it to the next checkpoint? Because it come pretty close. Us starting back in the back of the field, the checkpoints were closing down pretty quick on us. We You had to run a pretty decent pace to just make it through the checkpoints. Uh, Big Ugly was the only one that actually went all the way through and made, made every one of them. But, yeah, I remember they come in. You were flapping around like a chicken, and you busted that damn radiator cap off. <laughs> that's exactly what happened it was like we're gonna get we're dumping water in this thing and we don't care how hot it is it's gonna happen yeah, send that, them off, let them go and that's and that is you know sprayed with uh boiling hot piss yeah we learned a lot of stuff on that trip though you know the stuff that i learned in those you know couple days was man it's pretty crazy how it's it's like i said in the beginning of the interview thing those trips with those kinds of guys and what all you learn in those settings is you can't recreate that anywhere else there's no school there's no anything else we can all talk about it online or facebook or nothing else or pirate you can say all that but like the thing was we got out and were there and did it and that's what made the difference absolutely experience and then you go back and talk about it and and spread spread the word uh it was was a good good damn time no doubt Shortly after returning from that trip, we you started working with Nazir Adam on his race efforts. And Nazir was a, a East Coast XRA guy. He's a he's a doctor. He was an ER doctor in one of the Carolinas. He was from North Carolina, and he did a lot of and he worked. He was a doctor at the time in Virginia. That's what so, it was. Yeah, Doc Adam, man. Like so, I took the hustler to the lake bed, and in 2009, I placed seventh. Highest East Coast finisher there was. Everything else had a good run that year. 2012 came along, and that's back when Dave Cole was renting his IFS car. He rented it to Doc. Dave wanted me to build a car. Let me see how the story goes. The story goes, Dave wanted me to build a car in 2000, right after 2008. Wanted an IFS car. I couldn't do it in time for him. Brian Kirby took on the job. Kirby got the car done. 
Dave couldn't race it in KOH just because Dave was there working. So he rented the car to Doc. They talked good to Doc about me. Doc was on the East Coast. I was on the East Coast. So we started building him some cars. And that's how we got hooked up with Doc. Doc was an awesome guy. I still do work for him now. Do work for him and his brother a little bit. Just super good guys that have been with me for a good long time. And just their four-wheeling has changed and progressed. My four-wheeling has changed and progressed. But it's kind of one of those guys, whenever the phone rings, it's just like talking to an old friend again. You know, same deal. But we built that guy a very, very cool rear engine car that was, at the time, it was, I'd say, I'd call it cutting edge at the time. Really nice and clean and everything else. But he was one of the customers that gave me a good shot to build a good car. So, yeah, that, that with Dr. Adam took that and then from that car is kind of we took the knowledge from there and then the other buggies we built and actually started our own chassis line the revolutions and that's actually where you could honestly say we started really refining what we were doing as far as building goes yeah you're taking what you're learning off the race cars and applying them into what could be a a trail car it could be a trail car We've turned them into four-seaters. We've turned them into long ones that had a lot of storage. We've, we've built really small ones that didn't have much storage, but rock crawled awesome and, and got around in the woods really good. So with that, when we started our chassis line was when we really started taking a lot of notes on what we were doing every time and what we really liked, what we didn't like, and we refined it out. And that's what's led into where we're at today with our chassis line. And that was all the way back in, like you said, 2012. And your chassis line is, it's unmistakable. I mean, it has swoopy lines. It does. Lots of curves. Yeah. we Lots of rolls. We use a roll bender in a lot of our, in all of our chassis and all of our current chassis right now. It's always been one of our signatures. It's a slight roll. It's got a really cool, what I call the belt line of the, of the buggy. And it, it is kind of unmistakable for sure. Now, moving from just those product lines, uh, being the product line being uh, your full size off-road crawler, racer, trail rig chassis, you started getting into uh, the UTV world. We did. We we moved into the UTV world, had some great customers with UTVs. BJ Allen was one of the first guys that ever to let us do like some full builds. I actually raced one of BJ's Razors in KOH 2012, I do believe is the year that I raced his Razor. Blew up the front diff in one of the rock sections, but had a ball. And we have actually, we built a lot of razor cages and everything else with all the new machines and everything else. It's just got way too competitive to try to build a cage, pallet it and ship it and try to keep any kind of money out of the deal. And we've actually turned away our production on razor cages. And what we're turning our attention to is a full razor buggy that if you crash your machine on Monday, you could order this chassis and take all your parts, put it into our buggy and actually have a full-blown buggy and all you have to do is you and your buddy could spend a weekend or two swapping out parts and go from your factory razor chassis to a wide open design chassis which is amazing because you know it is so common for a guy to go in they sign on the dotted line they get their $500 a month payment for their razor they go 3 miles and they total the thing yeah they tell them uh a lot of what's there is a razor is built to trail ride and not be wrecked and they go too dang fast and they drive too dang good and you're going to wreck them oh yeah absolutely i mean you're going to wad these things up they're so much fun to drive right off the showroom floor it's pretty amazing you can buy such a cool vehicle right off the showroom floor and what's really cool about it is you can buy one i can buy one tomorrow and we could go out and ride this weekend as buddies but so the cage market is pretty much saturated with a lot of good guys out there doing it. You've got knockdown kits that ship and everything else. And shipping was the biggest thing that really killed us or really pushed us away from continuing forward with just building jigged up razor cages. That and we could build a, a cage out of a jig for machine A and it would slip right on. You wouldn't even have to get a lineup punch. You put it on machine B, both of them brand new off the showroom floor. It didn't fit. It didn't fit good. You had to finagle it and line up punch and jack and ratchet strap and everything else. It was just kind of a, it's a hard business to be in. So you tried it and that's business, right? You, you try something until you think it's a good idea. It makes money and then you run it until no, you know what? That, that was a failure. That's not core to where I want to be with my business. That's 
taken exactly away from. Right. And when we really look at what do we do, what do we, why have we been longstanding in the buggy market? Because we offer value. We are ingrained in the buggy market. I build more buggies than anybody else on the East Coast. I mean, Randy Rod builds a lot of buggies. Don't know how many buggies Trent Fab's building now, but there's some guys out there building a lot of buggies, but we're, we're up there with those guys. And I think all those guys, what they have is they are ingrained in the buggy market and they offer some value to it. With us just building racer cages, we didn't really offer any extra value to the racer market. So I think we never did get a good foothold. This razor buggy is going to be the first thing that has been out there that offers our true niche and our true value that shows what we can do as wide open design and what the difference that we can offer somebody. And that's what we're looking to do with it. We built the first one. We prototyped it out for Hubert Rowland. Hubert's a good friend of mine. He runs with the Nocturne Circus guys, with Travis Pastrana and all those guys. And he actually ran our very first Razor Buggy last year at KOH. Um, he did finish. He didn't finish in time, though. But he finished all the miles. He just didn't have the clutch, wasn't adjusted right, and he burned up a lot of belts over the over the course of it. But come across the finish line, the thing was still looked pretty much brand new besides a bunch of burnt-up belts, and it wasn't hurt at all, ready to go more miles. So I feel like the proof is there. We're proofing out the second one now for him. We're doing another one for Hubert, and we're jigging everything as we go this time. So we haven't really released anything on it yet other than a few teaser pictures, but we will do a complete release whenever it's ready to go to market. That's one thing I have learned in business. We don't show anything until it's ready to go. Is it going to have signature belt line? The one that we're doing now has a bent belt line because Hubert's sponsored by Polaris, and we put a razor front clip on it. And the the roll tubing does not go with that squared off edgy look of a of a Polaris front clip. There is a drawing in CAD of a rolled belt line that's that would really fit. And yes, that's gonna come as soon as we build one that's not that doesn't have the plastic front clip on it. Since we're fully on the the business and business lines and what makes money and what doesn't make money and where we should be focusing and not be focusing for you. You went out and in the buggy market, you looked at one of the things that's one of your largest uh, cost and consumables for, for, for a buggy build outside of the, the drivetrain is the, the axles. And you got involved uh, with Crane Axle. You bought into that. Walk me through that whole, that whole M&A transaction, you know, your whole merger and acquisition of Crane. Because that's a, that's a 100% wide open design subsidiary these days, right? It is 100% owned and operated by Wide Open Design. We do it all right here. Everything but the casting. So the way the story goes with that is, is we were a dealer for Crane Axle, have been a dealer for them a really long time, good long time. A major percent of what they were selling, we were selling as a retailer. So we were one of their best salesmen that they had. I figured out, and the CAD drawings were done for this knuckle back at the old shop, so 2011-ish or whatever else, I saw pretty quick that a 35-spline axle and a 1480U joint was at its limit in rock bouncing and other forms of four-wheeling as far as being a reliable axle. I knew that we needed a 40-spline shaft and a big U-joint, like rockwell size U-joint. So I drew up a fabricated knuckle that held a big belt RCV and then a 40-spline shaft inside of a 14-bolt differential, or if you want to use them on Dana 80s, the full two-inch shaft. We were building those things here in-house on a full manual mill and manual lathe setup. We have about 40 to 48 hours in a pair of knuckles by the time we were done machining and doing them. And we called Joshua over at Crane, actually Rocky, my main right-hand guy here, sales manager, office manager, shop manager, whatever you want to call him. Called Joshua. And Rocky, for anyone that calls Wide Open Design, that's who you get. You're going to get Rocky. He's the guy. Well, you get Rocky or Eric now. And uh, so I've got another guy there that's helping sales. But Rocky's been with me for ever. Uh, last year was his 10th year here with us. So to have a guy here with you 10 years is like a virtual partner. And I wouldn't know what to do without him. And he's an awesome dude and everything else. I could go on all day long about that. We may touch back on some of that. But the crane story goes is Rocky called Joshua and was like, hey, we're going to we're looking at doing a casting of this. I know that crane is cast. It's 8620 chromoly. It is the best product on the market and it's in a cast knuckle scenario. So we were like, can you help us do this? Long of the short of it was, he said, if you're serious about doing this, would you look at buying Crane? And we were like, whoa, really? And he said, yeah, Joshua had a, a plan. He was going to retire. I mean, he did retire, I think, 
maybe last year or the year before. So it was kind of in his fall of maybe let's get this into somebody else that's going to take it on and run with it. He trusted us because we, you know, we already bought a lot of the product. So we were looking at doing the big Magnum Knuckle. What's the Magnum Knuckle today? And that's what kind of started the fire of, of purchasing crane so we purchased crane axle from joshua drove out to colorado got everything and that was a whirlwind of learning how to deal with foundries and casting and machining and everything else that is a pretty long ride we could have a whole podcast on that but long and the short of it is is it takes a while to find the right foundry that fits the process that you're going through with your pattern box it's green sand cast so you can find a foundry that may do steel, but they may not be doing steel with the pattern boxes that you use. So you have to shop this around to different foundries. And then every foundry you go to, you're on a six to eight week lead time before you can even get test pours. And then by the time you get them, it's just a long process of doing this. I thought it was going to be a lot easier. But if they'd have told you how hard it was going to be, you probably wouldn't have done it, and then you'd have messed up. Because I'm definitely glad we did it. We've got it up, and it's running now. Got a great foundry. A couple of years ago, we bought CNC machines, brought all the machining in-house to where we're doing that now. And that's the reason the CNC machines are here, because of the machining with crane axle is what really keeps those going. And then wide open design gets to benefit off of we can make all the parts that we were outsourcing for those as well right here now. So it's just been a great, it's been a great add on to wide open design. And, and here you are, you're in Murfreesboro, Tennessee and creating jobs. No doubt. Yeah. I mean, the small town or the small business mentality, like you've got to be proud to say that every bit of a crane knuckle is built in the U.S. It's poured in the U.S. It's poured out of 8620 chromoly. It gets shipped to Murfreesboro and it gets machined right here. And that's pretty awesome. It gets boxed up and it's used, you know. No, that's proud. I mean, exactly. That yeah. is exactly proud. It's got to make it, I mean, it almost makes the, the hair on the back of my neck stand up about, yeah, that's, because everything, it's so easy today. Everyone ships everything to China. They put it in crap metal, pot metal, and you get it yeah. back and you weld on it once and you realize it's crap. It's going to break. Not this, not this stuff. Yeah. It'd be really easy to go overseas or whatever with Trump's new tariffs and stuff. Who knows how hard it would be. And when all that levels out, uh, it, it actually could be a good thing for Crane Axle. If, you know, competition has to pay these tariffs and stuff, we've already set our business to not having to do that. It could be a good thing for us. No, absolutely. I think it will be. And I think uh, we won't talk political climate or anything like no. that. But when you get to that level of the game, yeah, those are certainly inputs that you have to address and look at and keep your eye on for sure. No doubt. So, yeah, that was a pretty cool deal to be able to acquire the, the deal. I was pretty proud that Josh trusted us with a company that he, you know, that he worked on hard and he built up and he loved the company, still does today. I mean, he's still a, a big proponent of it. So it's always good whenever you can get a hold of something like that and then actually, you know, try to keep it moving forward. And I do believe that's what we've done. We've, we've spent more time in the past year really putting together the complete lineup of 40 spline products for the axle market from actually really cool billet spindles that are uh, chromoly steel and heat treated rear spindles that expect to accept a 40 spline axle shaft we've done unit bearing cups that take the big 450 unit bearing we've adapted the unit bearing to the front magnum knuckle everything that the market's been asking for we've been trying to reply to this year and where do you think the future is? What do you think the next hurdle is going to be? Since we 40 splines happened, 1480s happened, the big magnum knuckles have happened. What's the What is the next thing that guys are beating on and breaking that you see that's going to be the place where you have the opportunity to address or just what do you, or someone else to address? What's the next thing? There's some stuff. There's one thing in mind I'm, that you realize that I think our next move will be building axles for Jeeps that are on the road, like JKs, JLs, all that. I think that is our next move. It's it's where you can get, there's too much market share out there to not pay attention to it. But with that comes, you have to work in all the tone rings, all the ABS, the stuff like that. So that's our next biggest hurdle is actually building an axle that will slip into a Jeep and actually let it go down the road without all the lights in the dash and everything else dinging and going off. Yeah, I've got, I've got that problem on my daily driver right now. <laughs> You, you you go to five eights, you know lug nuts and race studs on a race hub on the front of your truck. There's no 
there's no tone rings on trophy truck hubs and you go no. slam, you go slam them on your daily driver all of a sudden uh yeah i've i've got a bunch of lights that are on on my truck because of exactly that and yep. most soccer moms that are out leaf looking in their jk don't want their lights on that's it yeah i mean that's i don't blame them i mean man if you spent if you drove a new jl or any at all or the new gladiator I've only been around them. I have not uh, ridden one yet, but I hear they're glorious. Super nice. <laughs> Super nice. I wouldn't want any lights on in my dash either. So, I mean, whenever you kind of take that vehicle and you step, you realize like, hey, I'm trying to build something for this. It has to be on that caliper of nice. And no, nobody wants any lights flashing or anything else. So that's kind of where that's I think that's going to be our next major hurdle. And I think when you take that mentality that you have, that you're going to take a finished product and you're going to, you know, exactly put it into more or less the public, you know, to date, you've been doing a lot of stuff for guys that are going to go out and beat on their junk and they're going to, you know, tear it up. And there's some level of expectation of being hard on it. Some of that failure is to be expected, but when you're doing like what you're saying, going under OEM stuff with people that more or less want the the look, they want to go down the road, they they still want to hit the trails, but they're not hitting the trails like you and I describe as hitting the trails. Exactly, but here's the best thing. So like the Magnum knuckle, you know, it's this big knuckle front end, 40 spline inner axle shafts, big outer shafts, everything that's just bulletproof. It's only about five grand more to go from a Dana 60 knuckled front end to a Magnum knuckled front end on a buggy that we're building. I hate to say it. It's only five grand more, but it's only five grand more. And then that guy gets to thinking and and they're like, do I want to drive all the way to Moab and have axle problems or do I not? That's the five grand right there. That one trip that they don't ever have to worry about their axles or anything else anymore. Really, it kind of justifies really quick of I'll pay this right now and have a good axle that I can always depend on. And that's going to be the best thing is we're bleeding in that next size axle. We're not doing a Dana 60 swap. We're doing a 14 bolt with Magnum swap. Up front, it kind of, it looks like an insurance policy, but on and the back is. end, but on the back end, it's not. It's uh, you're adding value to the vehicle. You're not going to get 100 percent that value out, but you're putting a price on peace of mind. And I'm going to tell you that, you, and you know, that's a hard place to you put value on is peace of mind. But if you don't have to worry about it, set it and forget it. Yep. For not much more. I think that's a, a win. So you guys, yeah, I've got. Go ahead. I've got a good buddy of mine, Cody. That like it's it's hard for us with Crane of saying, hey, what what deems a Magnum knuckle necessary? Well, Cody Gregory is a good friend of mine. He's got forty three inch stickies on his buggy. Had a a low pinion sixty in the front with the Jana kit and RCVs in it, thirty five spline and a stock six O motor. He tore up all kinds of front end stuff and finally finally had to go through a pretty major overhaul to get a fourteen bolt in the front of his buggy. He changed driver to passenger drop, a lot of different stuff, but or from passenger's drop to driver drop. But since he put that 14 bolt with Magnum knuckles in the front, he hasn't broken anything, knock on something hard. But what he'll tell you is like, it's so much more fun to go ride and not have to worry about breakage every time. And that's what we love giving somebody is that peace of mind with that, with a better axle rear end, front end, whatever it is. We're, we've tried to really go in and build the parts that are needed in the market to put 40 spline on the front line. And then the tire manufacturer comes out and makes a next bigger tire and the next bigger stickier and taxes the hell out of where you thought you had them beat. Cat and mouse game. Oh, it, yeah. Which came first? That's the, yeah, that, that, that's funny. It's kind of like the LS engine is, I think that the drop of the LS engine actually has hurt more parts than anything else in the, the whole off-road game ever had. I, absolutely. You can remember when we were doing this on TBI 350s. Well, I mean, that was a smoking 250 horsepower, and you could just, you could abuse this thing. Now that's like 500 horsepower is absolutely the norm. Yeah, I know. Like 400, four, four and a quarter was like you were really pushing the limits and just uh, having the recent conversation with Bender about this, who was on the, you know, this, this recent episode where he said, uh, Ken Mercer's car had 600 and some horsepower. Well, that's when everyone had 400. He had 600 and that thing sounded so rowdy, oh, nasty, yeah. just rowdy. And here, <laughs> here we are. The norm in ultra four is 750. If you, if you want to play, if you're going to Crandon, which Crandon is now on the schedule for the East series for next year, you need 800, 8, 830, 850 just to hang. If you want to hang in the front, you want to believe you're a contender. You're, you need to be into that number. And yeah. that is a violent 
number that does violent things to the car that does you were the first one to the scene of the accident by a <laughs> that brings me up to think about the unicorn your old car was had just a rowdy motor in it and everything else but like you realized really quick going from a the old buggy you had that had just what i would call a trail engine in it to the unicorn that had this big rowdy motor in it like fighting a rowdy motor is it's a handful of just like maintenance and figuring out problems and then what it does to the car it's called fast car blues for a reason it beats the car to death oh yeah you're throwing away heim joints every couple <laughs> races just throwing away yeah. <laughs> yeah we used to call it like hundred dollar to death on the trail buggy and this thing was five hundred dollar and you to death on every single part and prep on it was just asinine yeah man don't get me wrong i totally miss you know green flag to checker flag time but i do not miss checker flag to green flag time <laughs> at all i do not I've never or the cost it. I've never heard it said that way, but yeah, the the cost is, it hurts. Like I said, if you want to go race, you need to be able to do it on the right, the right frame of mind. And, and I think there's two things there. There's money and time, and you got to have both of them. If a guy's not willing to put down both of those, then there's no reason to look at racing. And I, I think that's anything though. I, I really do to, to be competitive at anything. What's the future hold for you? More kids? I don't know. We don't know about that. Yeah, that we don't know. I, I'll tell you, and uh, it's dropping because it's it's happening right now. The shop, we've built a buggy that we're fixing to debut to race uh, Southern Rock Racing stuff. And we haven't really said anything to anybody about it. It's it's like literally today it had the wrap put on it, and I'm debuting it out. And I'm putting a driver that's pretty well known in the Southern Rock Racing series right now. And I'm going to put him in it, and we're going to call the buggy the buggy's name is redneck rocket ship is what we're going to call this buggy for the shop we've been working on it for a long time and what it is not is a layup of a chassis that we've already had out before the buggy is it's like five foot seven inches tall at ride height like top of the cage trailing arms on the back magnum knuckles front and rear 14 bolts supercharged engine in it turbo 400 it does have an atlas in it now if that holds up great it may get a straight drive it someday Rad Flow, three-inch, five-tube bypasses on it. We're going to really try to take a stab at the Southern Rock Racing Outlaw, the Outlaw Series, Southern Rock Racing. What there's some more Pro Rock, the East Coast Series that are that are out there right now, and see how the buggy does. It's wrapped with a crane axle wrap on it. We wanted a buggy that got out there and actually took that company to the forefront. That company really has. It needs a good. It needs a good flagship and that it does not have right now it deserves a good flagship we've built this buggy for the shop and and everything else so pretty excited about that that's if you want to know what the future holds that's going to be the probably the next thing you see out of here that's i, I guess you're hearing it here first really i love it yeah i do have a question though and this isn't specific to the redneck rocket ship what is with the names of southern buggies ah uh, man it just kind of happens they it if you didn't have a name to it or whatever else, the Southern buggies aren't numbered. That's the whole deal. But it's like Lauren Healy's got the dragon. Then I guess that's really about the only one I can really think of. But all of Ultra 4 has numbers. And Southern Rock Racing or anybody else has never made guys run a number. So how else will you know the buggy? Fair enough. I mean, I can I, I can name a bunch of them, like the Hulk or Screaming Blue or oh, the Hustler or any number of the ones that Timmy Cameron has cranked out. A lot of the guys on the West Coast make fun of the, the names and stuff that come up with them, and that's that's one reason that I come up with. Uh, actually, my buddy Jake Odom come up with the name of Redneck Rocket Ship one day when we were at a race, and I was like, I'm naming my next buggy that for sure. <laughs> I loved it. I was like, it's. It's kind of like I've talked to you before, like I just kind of own the own the, the redneck gig or whatever else because we do have fun with it and whatever else. So why else would you name it anything else? Really, I'm kind of concerned. Well, I can't wait to see the videos when, you know, Matt Ram 11, Cole Shirley. Yeah, I want to see uh, redneck rocket ship videos come out on that. I can't wait. Yep, I actually do believe that Cole Shirley, I will, uh, like the walk around of the very first videos and stuff, I believe will be on Mad Ram 11, probably before we even post them. I've actually been talking with Cole about doing some stuff with it, and that's probably where it'll head first. That's awesome. 
Yeah, man. Yeah, I'm pretty excited. Once once we get a little bit further into it, the driver that's that's going to be driving it primarily is uh, he's been racing for a really long time, and I'm really excited to see him in some really good equipment. I'm pretty pretty pumped about the whole thing, actually. Anything else uh, we want to get off your chest today? Oh, we talked a lot about Crane. I could tell you a little bit about wide open design. And what a lot of people do think is we just build buggies here. And I wish people understood that we saw it, that we probably stock more parts than anybody else on the East Coast for hardcore four wheeling. So if you're needing parts and stuff, we have really cranked up inventory and everything else over the past couple of years to where we're carrying all the parts that a guy's going to need. And whenever you really look at the shipping routes and everything else, we can get them to anybody a lot faster as well. And, you know, you've said that to me in the past, like uh, about work. You said, man, that's the hurdle. You made a name for yourself with amazing, beautiful works of art, rolling turnkey buggies. Yeah. But that has made a lot of guys be like, I don't want to take my JK there for a roll cage because I'm not a, a buggy. I'm not a, it's not a turnkey build. And you're sitting there saying, Hey, give me the shot at the, the work. I, that's it right up my alley. Like we can do that. We can fit that in. We can knock that out. It's not even as much the work as it's the product. Everybody thinks automatically they're like, if they see that buggy and they see that shiny object, they think, I can't afford anything that guy's got. And that's totally not the case. We've spent more money doing buying power, buying, we've spent more money doing buy-ins to get deep discounts in the power to where we can, you know, sell at a good rate than probably anybody else over here. So we've got it. We've got it on the shelf and it's, it's at a good price. And I've actually got the staff up front like you said rocky i've got eric up front that can really help a guy get the right part the first time so when are we going to see you back in a car uh i'll drive the rocket ship some here and there i don't have immediate plans of that anytime soon not, not besides <laughs> trail ride. when are we going to see Wyatt back in a race car yeah probably sooner than later i'm I, I have not learned from my past exploits awesome i have a very short memory that's how that works. Well, awesome. <laughs> Call me whenever you want to go race and I'll come hang out. <laughs> no, let's do it together. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that is the deal. Like I've, I've always, I miss racing and I miss 4,400 racing worse than anything. That's been, that is absolutely the most fun racing that you can do. And I think it's because you get your money's worth. And whenever I say that, there's nothing like strapping in that car and being there for eight, nine, 10, 15 or 20 hours for a race. It is absolutely 100% taxing mentally, physically, the whole deal. It's so much fun. Absolutely. And then it's the camaraderie. It's, it's our friends. It's uh, the people that we've met over the years. I said, I've, just like you brought up earlier, I've, I met you over 10 years ago and just this evening, just having this conversational dialogue with you is just so easy and unabated. And, you know, it's just been good. Adam, thank you for coming on. Thank you for being on Talent Tank. Thank you for sharing with us a little bit of the crane history, you know, a bunch of the wide open history. I really look forward to what the Redneck Rocket Ship holds in the future for you guys. I do want to see you drive it though, but I get it. Right on, man. Dude, I really appreciate you having me on. I think I thank you for putting this whole project together because I think it's a pretty cool look at the backside of a lot of cool people in the industry. Uh, I'm a fan. I'm hooked. I'm always listening. So thank you for having me on. All right, man. We'll see you. We're out. Awesome. You made it. Another episode consumed. If you like the listen, please go give the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcast and consider writing a quick review either there or over on the Facebook page. Thank you for tuning in to this wild dive into the talent tank. Wyatt, out. Thank you for listening and taking a dive into the Talent Tank. Please like and subscribe on Instagram at the Talent Tank or our website, thetalenttank.com.